But yeah, let's kind of like kind of riff on that a little bit because I, you know, William Irwin Thompson, for instance, our mutual, uh, I, I don't know, influence would be a good word. Um, yeah. Uh, inspiration. Inspiration, influence. Uh, Yoda. He put his, yes, he's our Yoda. He's our kind of countercultural Yoda. <laughs> um, he put some poetry in his writing as well through like, um, uh, I don't know if anything was in darkness and scattered light, but uh, let's see. What was that one about uh, the Maya and the Aztecs? That little book. And it's kind oh. of like a long essay on uh, on Quetzalcoatl. And then there's then there's some poetry at the end of it. So I'm super post literate, and I listened to all of that material in the Lindisfarne tapes while I was oh, driving amazing. across the country a couple summers ago. Like I just binged Lindisfarne tapes. So I, I'm familiar with the stuff, but I, you know some of his older works I didn't actually read. Um, yeah, yeah. Well gosh the lindisfarne tapes are interesting I, I feel like not many people know about them or what they are you know there's like there's this strangeness to the lindisfarne history that like you and i know about it and our and our buddy um mitch knows about it as well right um but not a lot of people are aware of that material and in some ways it's kind of like this alternative history right where all the conversations that we're having today were had back in the seventies by a different group of people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Yeah, there's a kind of like canceled future. That's now kind of recurring through us. I, sorry. I, I was, um, I'm actually in a correspondence with Nora. I was going to have her on future fossils. Like we had to reschedule because I was in the, you know, assisting with childbirth <laughs> at the time. But yeah, like that, that particular thing is, um, Working here at Santa Fe Institute, you know, like Stuart Brand was on the board of SFI for 14 years, uh, Paolo Soleri, Francisco Varela, the, the, the questions of like these hugely influential people. Uh, I think Stuart Kaufman was even part of Lindisfarne. Uh, like there's, so. there's, yeah, there is this sense that we're, I don't know, there's like that, that scene in Land Before Time when they all fall asleep in the footprint of the Tyrannosaurus and they don't even realize it. You know, I feel like that that's all of us like scrappy, precocious, young philosopher types are like literally just st like asleep in the footprints of the Lindisfarne Association. And like, yeah, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, that's perfect. That's perfect. Um, it, it just makes me think there's a kind of do, do you know Mark Fisher's work? Uh, he no. talks about so he's kind of more in the in the social theory and economic theory. Um, he wrote a number of books for zero books famous for his capitalist realism. So it's kind of more looking at that angle, but I really like his sort of cultural exegesis. And he has this concept that he borrows from Derrida called haunt hauntology, right? This idea of a canceled future, uh, a future that was meant to happen and was talked about and anticipated, and then it didn't happen. And, and that transformation has kind of been postponed somehow, or it's still kind of latent. And, and so the, the old world is still kind of dragging itself along. In some ways, what you know, what you're mentioning too about sleeping in the footprint, it, it reminds me of what Nora has been, Nora Bateson has been saying in different interviews that I've uh, picked up on, like on Team Human with Doug Rushkoff and uh, a number of other interviews, where she's saying, you know, when I was a kid growing up, you know, with her her father Gregory Bateson, right, the dinner table had the same conversation that she's having today about complexity and emergence and what we need to do and how we need to be thinking today, you know, but 30 years ago or so, you know, so I don't know, it's this kind of an interesting moment where we seem to be 
kind of skipping across time and that transformation isn't quite here yet. Uh, do you get what I'm saying? It, it's yeah. this kind of weird place to be, I think, well, our generation. I've been thinking about that a lot with respect to, you know, it, it comes up on Future Fossils all the time, Doug Rushkoff's present shock. You know, this this notion that everything is happening now, um, that the digital milieu sort of encourages this this uh, endless memory. And on the other end of it, also this extraordinarily powerful predictive tool that that uh, allows us to at least imagine that we're capable of seeing further and further into the future with these more and more sophisticated models. So we really uh, become unmoored in the present to the degree that, you know, philosophers like Timothy Morton kind of, you know, they, they argue that the present doesn't even exist, you know, that it's that there, you know, there is a systems theory angle when, you know, taken to its logical conclusion that, uh, we, that we don't have a present at all. At least, you know, I feel like that that is an artifact of pushing, um, sort of a negation of the subject, which is, you know, the, the sort of full extent place that this is, that that kind of modernist thinking takes us, you know, um, the, this is, yeah, but then, you know, Rushkoff talks about it in, in terms of it being a fractal phenomenon where we have this hitting the world all at once, but then you have like, uh, how is it? My friend, Michelle Shevin introduced me to the writing of WJT Mitchell, who talks about this in terms of a, a paleontology of the present that mm. there are there are so many different, and uh, you know, you as a, a Gebser scholar, I'm sure you appreciate this perhaps even more deeply than I do. That that it's not just an ecology of individual minds at different levels of psychological development that are in some way recapitulating different moments of human evolutionary history, cultural history, but that the uh, in, in the same way that all technological inventions that we that we know of from history are co-extant now in the 21st century and like if there's somewhere in the world kevin kelly talks about this and and what technology wants that there's somewhere in the world right now where somebody is like using a 5000 year old plow to plow the the field and you know there's somewhere you know i i was in an argument uh or moderating and uh, you know a, a very interesting provocative conversation on my facebook page today uh between people uh this guy a friend of mine who wants to uh use his own stem cells to lab grow steaks with his dna and so it's like you have this whole sweeping you know this this enormous swath of time that's all happening at once. And on top of it, uh, even though the, this information is being stored somewhere, um, it's being stored in lossy formats, incompatible program languages, um, different, you know, uh, different human natural languages that we haven't learned to properly translate. There are, uh, you know, that people come up with unique idioms for describing things. And so you end up in this thing where like, when I started working at Santa Fe Institute in October and it's April 1st, this recording, um, it, it's taken me six months to try and even like plumb the, 
you know, to, to get us to, to sound just where we are in the conversation here, like what decade is this conversation happening in? Because whatever's going on outside, um, every, every single researcher here, there's, there's an enormous turnover. Um, you know, people, new people are passing through all the time. There's a weird kind of recursive self-referential thing going on in terms of the, some of the research coming out of, out of this institute has to do with uh, the half-life of cultural memory. And, you know, and then, of course, uh, I had a, a weird inter- intersection with Stuart Brand, uh, who went on to, you know, found Long Now Foundation um, and really believes in, you know, you know he's, he's, he's an activist for a long cultural memory. And I had no idea that he was um, directly involved in designing the architecture of the extensions of this building, you know, and like I got scolded by Stuart Brand (laughs) over Twitter uh, a couple months ago for like not knowing the history of this place. But it's like when I think about it and okay, this is the the end of this rant sort of Um, when you're exposed to just a fire hose of information and all of us are drinking from the fire hose right now. Um, there is something I think about, uh, like if the only thing I can really compare this to, uh, unfortunately is like a DMT trip where the contents of your experience are happening so rapidly that so much of your attention is absorbed in simply trying to pay attention, trying to make sense of what you're observing that there's no room left to model a self. There's no room left for autobiographical episodic memory. And I think that like as a society, you know, we're really up against this challenge of the pace at which we are creating things, innovating things um, is also inherently destructive. You know, that there's a non-duality to that. And so it's, you know, the, the, the idea um, that Kelly and Brand and these other uh, folks, related thinkers have popularized that we're living in a kind of digital dark age, that even though we're surrounded by information that we, you know, that we're incapable of finding our way through it in any kind of meaningful way. Um, yeah, that's, that's very, that's very uh, poignant for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I feel like it's, um, it's, it's really disturbing and, and kind of tragic, you know, that not just that, you know, more people don't know about Lindisfarne and these conversations, but that, that we may be, you know, that in a way Lindisfarne kind of wrote its own book on this. Um, they kind of predicted that this would happen in those conversations, you know, that they kind of foresaw a, a, a dark age like this in the, the collapse of the world age that they inhabited. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Just to begin on a, on a dark age note. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's something that's so interesting. I've just kind of seen it ripple through uh, the podcast sphere recently, like, um, you know, emerge podcast recently had on Dr. Jem Bendel and his deep adaptation paper and just sort of talking about the entertaining the idea that, collapse is inevitable and not sort of like um uh, withholding a naive optimism that we could all kind of like band together in the crisis but accepting the fact that okay there is a catastrophe coming up and yes we might live through it but we're also going to have to begin 
planning for it to actually occur. You know, and it, what's interesting is like Bruce Damer, who was just on your podcast, was talking about that to some degree, to sort of this idea that some cities need to be uh, uh, planning the sort of infrastructural revolution in terms of, you know, is this city going to get washed away in climate change? Or are we going to have to build some kind of uh, some kind of seawall, you know, like in Blade Runner 2049, you know, talk <laughs> about art reflecting reality. Um, you know, these are the questions and subjects that we need to be exploring now. So. I don't know. It's just in the air to be, to kind of be meditating on this, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's odd how, you know, Thompson and Lindisfarne, the whole idea of Lindisfarne, right. Is this, this monastery that was kind of facing the Viking uh, invasion, right. And then sort of the, the collapse of this proto Carolingian Renaissance uh, that sort of got canceled, but then there's still this little glimmer of hope that this little cloister of monastics and scribes are kind of holding on to the future, you know, for as a, some kind of like latent cultural seed, you know, um, Thompson calls it evolutionary deem. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Are, are we doing that now? I mean, how, how is your sense about all of this, talk of, of collapse and transformation and, and, and complexity. I know it's a massive, massive question to open up with, but yeah, uh, we're, we're on it. We so. are on it. Yeah, we're in it. I, you know, I, I feel as though people have an issue with dark ages because we have, we're still carrying the baggage of these, you know, uh, the modernist connotations of living in an age of enlightenment and illumination you know, but when you look at when you look at uh, extending that metaphor uh, into what you know the actual cultural dynamics, uh, my friend Todd Guess, uh, Todd Norman Guess, is uh, an armchair historian of the the European you know medieval Dark Age, and makes a really good point about how even though we lack you know. <laughs> what we would consider sufficient documentation from these times, what, what records did survive indicate that it was a period of, of extraordinary um, interfaith collaboration, you know, the emergence of the modern hospital, as we understand it as a, spa a hospice, you know, at the intersection of uh, trade routes where, you know, Christians and Muslims and Jews were, you know, coming together in, in a good faith, you know, humanist practice. Um, and that a lot of that stuff, you know, that, that this was, this was the time when enormous uh, progress was being made in the scientific world, uh, you know, especially in the Islamic world. And, uh, and yet, we think of them, we think of it as an age of, of uh, brutality. And, uh, and, you know, barbarity in part because that is uh, what supplanted it. And that's sort of what we cast back into that time, you know, that it was, it's, it's not so much that that age didn't leave records as it was that those records were destroyed actively, you know? And so, and then there's this other part, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the dark age, you know, this, this notion that, that darkness is bad. You know, I think it's, it's interesting to me to, if you think about it, like your guts need darkness, you know, the anaerobic bacteria of your gut require darkness in order to uh, thrive. 
you know, and, and uh, in the sense that sunlight is a, is an antiseptic, then, you know, this, this bias towards the illumination of, you know, the, of reason, you know, and the, the seminar, you know, pushing reason into the cosmos um, is very much in keeping with this sort of pathological uh, obsession with sterilization of our environments. And, you know, uh, I was, it, uh, I think it was Matthew Fox who wrote the article. Forgive me if this was, I'm always getting them confused. I think it was Matthew Fox that wrote the article on the return of the black Madonna and the, the return of this, this, uh, dark mother archetype and the, you know, all of the, the constellation of connotations around that, the, you know, the marginalized peoples, the earth, the body, you know, the, the repressed, uh, taboos, you know, the orifices and the, you know, the excrement that makes our soil rich and fertile and that, you know, maybe it's not actually a bad thing to be living in a dark age. Like I, I don't have uh, internet in my apartment right now, <laughs> which is why I'm doing this from work. Um, and the beauty of that is that when I, when I am at home without internet, I'm reading books, you know? So there is, I feel like there is a, uh, I feel like, I feel like there's, you know, something else erupts into dark spaces that is not, um, it's not necessarily bad. And, and we're carrying around this, this, I think ultimately kind of ecocidal suicidal notion of darkness as an undesirable externality that, you know, trees need to fall to call back on that conversation with Bruce Damer, the trees need to fall in the woods and, and restore their nutrients to the soil and allow new things to grow there. And, and an age when like, you know, it's every, you know, these enormous corporate mergers are creating a sort of an institutional uh, mature canopy forest that's depriving the majority of people of a living wage and, and uh, meaningful lives in this time, then I'm actually, you know, I see this sort of the, the notion that we're emerging into a dark age as actually radically optimistic, hopeful, because it means that, um, you know, the end of a gerontocracy, you know, the end of these centralized oligarchic reserves, you know, um, I, I think there's at least the, the, there's a, a tarnished silver lining in there somewhere. <laughs> right on though. <laughs> right on. I, I think, you know, um, there's a new book that's just come out called uh, The uh, New Dark Age, Technology and the End of the Future with uh, James Bridle. And I think that's out of Verso Books. But yeah, um, it's very interesting. Uh, I've just pre-ordered it and um, just got a little sample of it online. But the idea is uh, that this sort of computational future, right? Where, where information, the flood of information and access to it was going to uh, kind of catapults us into this, you know, um, Arthur C. Clarke age of tomorrow, right? Where, you know, the, the personal computer solves everything and computers and computation are the answer to everything. You know, this, this idea, you know, is very much, I think, along the lines of what, what you're saying in terms of this one-sided overemphasis on this kind of waking 
measurable consciousness that can kind of master everything and and progress forward endlessly, you know? So I think you're right. Just this, this whole idea that the dark age is only a dark age in terms of, you know, what it's relative to, you know? So all of the things that um, were meant to sort of carry us into tomorrow aren't doing the job and they're actually kind of undoing the tomorrow that they promised. But I think it's because a lot of the times they've, they've sort of unwittingly uh, produced that sort of catastrophe. Like Bruce Damer was talking about that. I think you're very much just mentioning that with this whole idea that, you know, these arborescent trees are, are kind of canceling out uh, the light for everybody else. And that just doesn't work, you know, in terms of this larger systemic approach. Um, so, yeah, I, I hear you about that. And I certainly hope that we can uh, uh, make it through this age of, uh, uh, you know, this upturning, right? This catastrophe or um, as Thompson always talks about, you know, it's it's the the chaos and the darkness is a kind of, it looks like noise, but it's really information for the right ears to hear it. You know, there has to be this kind of new work that hopefully our generation is going to be able to uh, do quickly enough to make a connection to something that you wrote mm. in the past. Um, you know, the, the whole idea of life in a glass age, right? I really liked where you were going with that piece. Um, and I enjoyed your conversation with uh, J.F. Martel and Phil Ford on, on weird studies about that, but uh, <laughs> really, really fun. Um, so this brings to mind for me the, uh, Gepser's idea, right? That the whole problem with the contemporary age is what he called perspectivalism. And basically he kind of caught it at the at the root as well, where he said basically, hey, the, the whole consciousness we've oriented ourselves on since like the Renaissance period, which started off well enough, this whole like measurement orientation, developing perspective and art and so on, was all very eye oriented. The organ of the eye became this sort of all encompassing thing, right? This totalizing vision where, you know, John David Ebert describes like lens mm -hmm. grinders like Kepler were were you know, these scientists were also lens grinders and artists, right? And they're all kind of trying to measure this new sense of space with the eye. And so like the lens, as you say, you know, it became very, very important. And now, of course, today we're doing the same thing we're in, in a different way, though, with our computer screens yeah. and all of these cell phones. We're still kind of gazing through the glass, you know. Um, but is, is there some kind of, again, with this kind of idea that it's only a dark age relative to the side that is sort of immoderately um, outreaching itself or, or kind of um, overreaching itself. Is there some kind of an enteodromia with all of this? You know, I was getting into this with uh, my friend's podcast just this weekend. Uh, my, my buddies, uh, John Speaker and Andrew Thompson host a, an arts podcast called Artsy AF. Um, and we were getting into is, is the transition that we're going through right now a J-curve, you know, this like Ray Kurzweil hockey stick exponential thing? Or is it an S-curve, like the Charles Eisenstein uh, argument that we're, we're going through a sort of ecological primary succession where the weeds break up all the, the concrete in the parking lot? And we look at that and we think, oh, my God, if these weeds keep growing this way, you know, if this baby keeps growing this way in five years, she will fill every square inch of this apartment, you know, or cubic inch. Um, but we know that it doesn't do that, that living systems find new equilibria, you know, and I, I think it's foolish for us to suppose that we can go on trying to like bootstrap our way out of what uh, former 
SFI president Jeff West, you know, talks about in his his work on scaling laws and cities and and corporations and animals and so on. You know, the thermodynamics of all of these the similar thermodynamics of all these different systems. Um, he talks about the finite time singularity, which is, you know, this this notion that we're going to hit infinity, you know, by 2049 or whatever, which is obviously impossible because there are finite resources. And so, you know, the, the model, the capitalist model is wrong. Um, but what is really going on here? And, you know, and does it, are we in the midst of a, a phase transition? And if we are, what is, what is the new equilibrium that, uh, you know, ar- that we'll arrive at that sort of balances all this stuff out? You know, I, I don't know that, um, I th- you know, I, we're, I think we're a little too close to C, but I, I think it's more complicated than just, you know, force and counterforce. Although obviously, you know, there are, you know, from the complex systems perspective, there are negative feedback mechanisms that kick in, you know, there, there are, um, you know, above certain population densities in all sorts of different lab animals, for example, uh, be it zebra fish or rats or fruit flies or what have you, um, there, we observe you, you mass, you amass animals in a container above a certain density and they start, um, flipping over into greater instance instances of, uh, homosexuality. Like there's sort of, even at the, even at the like innate level of the, you know, the individual sexual preference, there seems to be something, uh, like a social, downward causation in, you know, that's saying, okay, we don't, you know, we don't need as many breeders now, you know? And, and I think that the, the, uh, you know, we, we, we give all sorts of sociocultural reasons for reduced birth rates in the developed world and all this stuff. But I think maybe it's just, you know, that we, that, uh, as people, become more and more densely connected, then certain things, uh, slow down actually, you know, certain things, we don't need eight kids to run a farm anymore. You know, um, we, we, we live in these dense metropolitan areas where we're forced into interaction with more and more different kinds of people. We become more tolerant of novelty of, of cultural diversity and therefore less restricted in our, um, expression of identity and more endorsed in our exploration of, you know, uh, non-normative identities, you know? So I think that there's, I mean, that's like a human way of putting it, but I think that there really are just sort of systems that kick in. Um, and then, you know, also, you know, I remember Bruce Damer speaking in 2013 at, at Burning Man about how there's a certain network density, at which point a, you know, a, a fragmented, uh, what SFI they would call like a liquid brain, like an anthill or a human society where the, the nodes all move around. Um, that at some point at, at, you know, I think it's like 10 billion nodes, the, it's the brain, the, the network starts to ex- exhibit, uh, a new layer of agency. It starts acting like a new, an individual, I don't, I, you know, I don't know where he was pulling that number, but I think there's probably a number at which this is the case. And so he, Bruce was kind of suggesting, hey, maybe, 
uh, we actually need another 2 billion people on the planet to really coordinate as a species in service of like planet scale solutions. You know, that, that right now the issue is that there's too great of a gradient between urban and rural populations and these sort of natural consequent views that emerge from living in being enculturated by these different environments. And that, you know, that maybe once we are, you know, there's enough of us, then the signal can actually travel all the way around without getting stuck somewhere. I mean, it's, it's, it's a complicated issue. I wanted to, I wanted to get to your, your point about the materiality, the material agency of glass though, when it comes to looking through a glass darkly and mistaking signal for noise, I've been really caught up in reading. Uh, and ha- have you have you checked out Eric Wargo's book Time Loops? In the first section of the book, he presents as b- pretty much overwhelming evidence for precognitive dreams and other sort of prophetic experiences. Like, how is it that people could possibly be receiving information from the future? And Wargo settles on the uh, you know Minkowski block space time the uh, you know the notion this like that all of time is sort of like this glass block and that each of us our lives are actually these you know these four dimensional objects that are woven through this block and this complex maze of of mutual causation and that you know he use he argues for example the um you know the prophecies don't allow you to change the future you know, in in a weird way, they they seem to, in your efforts to manifest them or to you know route around them, that they bring you directly into the prophecy, but in a way that you could not have avoided, and that it has to do with this, um, you know, quantum what he calls like post selection, which is related to this experiment that was. Uh, done in the last few years where they did, they took the the classic quantum double slit experiment, you know, where the measurement determines whether you see an interference pattern, uh, even from, you know, these, you're firing one photon at a time and this, you know, this, the, the photon appears as though it is intersect interacting with interfering with other photons at other moments in time. And then they took, uh, the same experiment and they doubled the grate so that they measured it after the light had already passed through the first grate and left or not left a diffraction pattern. And they measured it at the second grate and they got the same results. Like what, what they were basically this experiment demonstrated that the observation is affecting the outcome of events in the past. You know, even if it's just a few mil, you know, thousands or millionths of a second. So, Wargo draws on all of this, you know, this, this like hidden vein of quantum theorists over the last few decades, including, uh, I forget his Abram, Abramoff, Ugh, just read the book. He, there, he points to this, this sort of subterranean history of renegade quantum theorists that believe that quantum uncertainty is actually mechanical and deterministic and material. And it's not this like floofy, you know, immaterial new agey thing. And it's not that, that fundamentally God plays dice. He's like, you know, and really the, it seems as though Einstein was right, but that we have to account for the fact that 
information in the in whatever sense that we think of these things as not you know past present and future as not simultaneous that there is some information coming from the future and that the present is like a handshake and and so like everything that we regard as randomness or noise in these experiments is not it's just information that we can't contextualize because it's information about things that haven't happened yet so i mean that's to me, that seems like where the this notion of the glass age sort of reaches its apotheosis, and also where it uh, it 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 plays the bait and switch on us, and it's no longer about this sort of perfect knowledge of the cosmos, but it's it's about the fact that we it's a one way mirror, you know, that we are in a glass block but that we have to really like squint to see anything uh, looking in one direction. And even then we're, you know, looking through a glass darkly. Right. So, so yeah, that's, I think there's something about, you know, where you started this conversation on, you know, the aborted and recurrent attempts at a, a particular future that, you know, that I think would appeal to Thompson that I think would resonate with, with his perspective on, you know, that there you know, when he talks about history being this climb up a path to a temple at the top of the mountain and that prophecy is the, the mistake of prophets is not noticing how many switchbacks you have to climb to actually get there. It looks so close, you know, and that, that metaphor is a metaphor in which the future already exists. And we're just not really clear on our relationship to it, our distance from these objects that we feel as attractors drawing us to them. Okay. So there's, there's so much to unpack there. Um, first of all, I agree with you that this, this glass age seems to be reaching a, a kind of apotheosis. And again, you know, one of the reasons why beyond our mutual interests and kind of uh, our kind of mutual history, even with, with this co- counterculture, this consciousness culture, um, we both were doing work with like reality sandwich mm. and evolver for a number of years. And, um, you had that really interesting series on Google Glass, where I think a lot of this sort of got cast for the first time, at least in 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 your writing and exploring the subject of glass. Uh, Gebser, uh, you know, in my studies of him, he, he he again and again, you know, he's always talking about even at the beginning of Ever Present Origin, his main text, his his thesis really is that the past, present, and future have a kind of intimacy with each other that we don't understand, and that the perspectival age doesn't get, and it's still trying to segment it or separate it mm. or um, uh, kind of abstract it, or he, he described it as spatialized time, you know, <laughs> but time is actually this kind of amensional, almost like a hyper object to kind of just put words in, in Gebser's mouth. Uh, um, but he's always kind of deliberately sabotaging this idea that time is linear, that time is chronological. Um, and, you know, he was hanging out with folks like Werner Heisenberg mm. and, different quantum physicists. And, and so he, he had this kind of intuition for him. He was, you know, he was a poet, you know, he was this poet, writer, scholar, um, not really on the hard sciences end of things. And it was just this kind of profound intuition. I think that there was something going on in the arts that was explaining, uh, displaying a different form of dimensionality in terms of time and space. And he intuited that, you know, that there was going to be, or there already was happening this kind of overturning of the spatial world. And that, so this idea that, you know, the top of the mountain, like Thompson talks about, you know, 
we don't know how close or far we are from it because mm. the whole idea of of proximity, this kind of spatial proximity gets a, a lot more complicated in our time, right? There's so many different folds. It, the, the language and the metaphors that we use, which are very often spatial metaphors, no longer work when we're trying to comprehend time. And that's what I've always appreciated about your podcast too, this, this idea, um, even a, a conceptual one, of considering the self as a temporal being. D- Dogen has this great term, right? Um, he's using it in a slightly different context, but Dogen Zenji, the Buddhist uh, monk and, and one of those kind of famous Buddhist writers from, I think, the 1100s or 1200s in, in, in Japan, um, he has an essay called Time Being, um, where he's playing around with this idea that we are time beings and it's been kind of picked up by different writers. Um, but I, I kind of think about that book when I'm thinking about your podcast mm-hmm. and the way you're positing uh, or suggesting that we think about ourselves as time beings, as future fossils, you know? So maybe we can k- keep riffing on this a little bit because I feel like in this space, you know, considering ourselves from the future seems to be a very good way to start um, uh, uh well, you know, thinking more in the, the sense of time loops and, and thinking more along the sense of whatever kind of style of thinking and relating to the world might be needed, you know, for the future. I want to, oh God, I don't remember who was doing this, but anyway, um, the recent uh, quantum theory research on the notion that space and time are actually secondary characteristics of the uh, entanglement of objects you know, and which again is, is, uh, very much in keeping with Timothy Morton's thought about, you know, time being emanated by objects you know, his, he, he puts objects, uh, as ontologically prior to all of this stuff. And so, you know, the idea that, you know, that the, fr- I remember the, the first couple experiences I had, you know, like probably 10 or 12 years ago with psychedelics where I got a really palpable experience of, this this idea that the present is a, a an intersection where a causal history leads uh, or you know finds its fruition in a future history that observes its own past that you know like this a lot of weird stuff gets explained in in these sort of tautological scenarios that that uh, modernity really despises and tries to do away with. But for example, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the so-called, uh, you know, the Goldilocks issue, you know, the, the, you know, the anthropic principle, this, this question of like, why is the universe so, so perfectly tuned to us? Why is it that the moon is, you know, one four hundredth the distance of the, the sun and one four hundredth its diameter such that when we see it in the sky, during a total solar eclipse, they're perfectly the same size, but this has never been true in the history of the planet due to the moon's decaying orbit. It never will be true again. It only occurs at the moment when there are humans on the surface of the earth to watch it and to marvel at the geometric precision and perfection of this, this, uh, this moon, which we now know also to have a, a, a totally vital and indispensable role in the history of, you know, the evolutionary development of things on, on this planet, like, you know, the tides are responsible for, you know, mixing chemicals into the ocean, creating these boundary zones where, 
where, you know, complex life could occur. And, you know, that, that whole thing seems very suspect, uh, to like, a you know, a, a sufficiently marginal, um, but still kind of, you know, modern by disposition mentality. Um, but when you, when you consider the, the possibility that, you know, that that's just how time works because there is a, a you know, a, a, a past that fits a future. And so those two things are resonant in an impossibly high dimensional quantum, you know, field of, of, uh, you know, the, po- you know, the possible and the actual. So we get the, we get the one thing that allows that past and that future to be, you know, and then all other possible conjunctions just don't even occur. And it's like, there's a sort of like causal Darwinism at play. And so like space and time emerge out of that, you know, that there's, I don't know, it, it, it sort of, to me, raises the question of, you know, what if any other possible uh, collusions between possible pasts and possible futures there might be, and you know how we, how if ever we could we could um, deduce their existence, the you know like doing a sort of archaeology of consciousness through the sort of um, the vectors that we have traced through our mythic narrative mind back into the merely correlative magical mind and then back before that into simply the sort of zero dimensional awareness in which these things exist you know and that that i think maybe as our science progresses that we get uh more and more rigorous and robust ways of talking about how you know all of these characteristics are like you know second order phenomenon to uh to like being and awareness um, and not, not in any kind of like immaterial way, but just as a, uh, you know, in a, in a sort of neither and both mind and, and matter kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. That, that sort of hits the nail on the head for me because of this notion that somehow, um, what we consider to be, well, we we're kind of like circling around it. And I think the, the more concrete ways to kind of talk about this on on a human level on a subjective level is to sort of explore these very human capacities very subjective capacities to access this sort of zero dimensional space right we have a whole history of that in in, in sort of the early romantic sciences like goethe and his 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 sort of a uh, um working with the imagination to kind of know a thing and to kind of have access to something about a thing in this other, in this kind of slightly altered state or this kind of visionary state. So, um, and of course with psychedelics, you were mentioning that before and some experiences in these, we have this kind of zero dimensional slash amensional ability to kind of step out of the, I guess the, the localized point in time and space that we're assuming to be real and then accessing these other possibilities. You know, Thompson talks about too with like how art somehow has this capacity to, um, to access the future and the past. Right. So what is it about, I guess, I guess this is sort of the other, the other half of the question Um, you've done and continue to do art. We were just talking about some uh, poetry, what is the role of art in sort of accessing these states of consciousness, these kind of um, uh, the, the being before the, before matter, there is being right before, before um, the apparent phenomena of spatial reality, there seems to be this kind of awareness or mm. uh, 
we're all sort of colonized by a particular way of thinking. And I don't necessarily believe that art is, I think art by virtue of it drawing upon a sort of more fundamental human mode of cognition than what usually gets us through the day in our mundane contemporary lives. You know, I don't, I don't, I mean, okay. So I, I just interviewed, uh, or I just edited the the interview with Bernie Taylor, who's a, an independent archeologist looking at the cave of El Castillo in, in Spain. And, you know, he, he noticed something that no other archaeologist had noticed about these caves, which is, you know, famously they they've got this white paint all over the, the wall. There's like a 30 foot mural that is, um, full of these, these like s- little strips of red ochre dots. And all of the archaeologists were getting hung up on these dots. And, uh, Bernie, who's dyslexic, uh, he, he looked at this, he looked at not just the, the, the pigment, but the pigment in relationship to the cracks in the cave wall. And then he, he reached out to, uh, let's see, is George Gamo, the, the animal behaviorist that taught Jane Goodall. And, um, with his help, he identified actually, uh, this entire series of animals that were hidden um, in the negative space of this mural, this 34,000 year old cave wall where fairly realistic depictions of different animals were there, but they were not the figure. They were the ground of this mural. And, and Bernie believes uh, that, that this mural, which, you know, the animals are all sort of, associated with they're, they're laid out in a sequence that suggests, uh, a, a pilgrimage across the Strait of Gibraltar, a sort of like shamanic initiatory quest where, um, the initiate would swim across to Africa and travel under the stars that were the constellations were like associated with the animals that were active at that time of year. And that this is where our modern Zodiac comes from. This is where the, the 12 trials of Hercules comes from that. These are sort of like decayed or, uh, um, vestigial forms of this original initiatic adventure, but that it all started with the, the issue of, can this person think differently from everyone else and enough to be useful to the tribe enough to be, the the medicine holder, the firekeeper, the person who you know holds the mysteries of time and and of you know the wisdom of all of these different animals, and that you know he says he's like basically uh, his his story of discovery with this mural is a weird sort of recapitulation of the original purpose of the mural, in that the the archaeologists who are used to like this sort of analytical thought didn't see it and that it took the outsider, which is a total cliche, you know, but that as it, as it should be, because they're, you know, from the very, very beginnings of human society, you know, the society as an emergent whole exerts an, uh, an agency over each of us, you know, we're not just in relationship with one another, we're in relationship with the society. The modern formulation of this is the social contract, but like, 
even uh, you know Jessica Flack here at Santa Fe Institute wrote a really interesting paper on uh, coarse graining as downward causation, where she says that even in in uh, she was a student of Franz Duval, the, the the primate researcher, um, her in her for her PhD, and so she uses this this uh, example of like a macaque dominance hierarchy, and how you don't just as a macaque you don't just know whether or not you stand to potentially win a conflict against another macaque, but you also are si- you're sizing yourself up in the eyes of all of the other macaques in the society. You're, you know, you're sitting on, you're sitting there computing what your own reputation. And that as soon as you're doing that, you're, you're in a dialogue with this aggregate uh, mind. You're making a model of the, the sentiment of the entire troop of macaques and each macaques model is going to be slightly different, but it's the variance between those models that, um, so basically we're sort of each of us, a, you know, an individual chip in this massive parallel processor. We know from like research into like swarm intelligence and, you know, and, and the wisdom of the crowd that, you know, you, you can take the aggregate of like everyone's guess about how many jelly beans are in the jar and the aggregate is right. You know, so the, the, her, you know, Flack's whole thing was that at the moment that you start relating to the whole society and not just to other individuals is the moment that the Holy ghost sort of, she's not her words, but mine, but like the moment that, you know, uh, the, the, the egregore sort of descends into the conversation and then you're no longer in charge. And so like from the very beginning, from even before the, the real like, you know, spark plug moment of human civilization, um, we've been in a dialogue with this transcendental other that later formalized as, you know, uh, deities as we settled into sedentary populations and, and needed to, you know, more complex regulatory structures and so on, but that it's always been there, you know, this sense of who we are in relationship to the social super organism, connecting that to Bernie's stuff, the relationship between, you know, art as a mode of seeing the, the transcendent, seeing the forest for the trees is actually like it it's a it's a necessary function of like an organ that the you know the shaman or the artist is is a a mode that the society as player has to play in order to have a, a, a complete repertoire you know or it's like you know the um the eyeball or something you know it's it's uh so you know it's i don't know i feel like i got off off the track of your original question there, but <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like you got, you got to it right at the end too. Just um, Henry Corban talks about this idea that the imagination can be considered uh, a faculty, right? Like, like reason or, you know, in this kind of old fashioned sense, right. And we have these different cognitive um, subjective faculties and to know the world. And then that the imagination is itself uh, an organ of perception. You know, Gary Lockman talks about this a lot as well in terms of sort of reviving the imagination as this organ of seeing. So I think I, I think you're really kind of spot on with with uh, with that insight and sort of relating it back to 
actual examples, embodied examples that are going on right now, right, in in terms of um, research and, and, and the sciences. So I, I don't know, there, there, there must be, you know, there is something about this, this kind of poetic state, this sort of dream state, um, these, these altered yeah. states that, that access something that the, perhaps, you know, the scientist, uh, in your example, uh, Bernie, right? Whether intentionally or not, whether or not they were looking for it or not, they were accessing this other state that in, engendered this new mode of perception that kind of opened them up to connecting with the individuals from 30,000 years ago, you know, that kind of stretch us across time in a way that the other scientists may not have been able to encounter it as directly just from kind of measurement and that kind of practice. So I think, I think there's something really um, important to that, you know, in terms of, well, how do we, how do we kind of embody this idea of being a temporal being, right? I, I love Morton. I think we both really appreciate Morton's work and, and that he's always talking about how reality, maybe you can help me unpack this too, because I'm trying to figure out what he means by this, this concept that reality is aesthetic, right? That, 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 that hyper objects are aesthetic and, and that's how we connect with them. I feel like, you know, he really has, he likes stating things in these extreme absolute terms and, and being a contrarian, and I think that he's, you know, he's he's issuing a very important decree about the aesthetic nature of reality as a, you know, as a as a rebuttal to, you know, the this sort of three or four hundred year tradition of regarding the aesthetic as merely an epiphenomenon of a, you know, a an objective quantifiable kind of, you know, a world of number. And yeah, it's, it's interesting that he, he does that. I don't know. It's been, a, it's been about a year since I read hyper objects, but I remember f- really feeling like I wanted to give him a high five for using the master's tools to dissect the master's house. You know, that, that he's, he's coming at it from, 20th and 21st century science. He's, he's speaking in the language of systems of general relativity and ecological sensibility. Uh, but he's doing it in a way that negates not only, you know, he's, it's, it's very much in keeping with like the weird studies episode where they talk about, uh, Graham Harmon and the third table, the notion of, you know, the, the profound and unknowable, but that there's always that, the, the the part of the world that we encounter and therefore the part of the world that exerts a a causal influence on us is the part that we're aware of. And I don't know, I would challenge that. Like, I think that, um, I mean, not completely, but like, okay, so there's this, uh, there's a postdoc here at, at SFI, Artemy Kolchinsky, who worked with uh, physicist David Wolpert on a paper last summer called about semantic information and attempt to restore meaning to the, you know, to information theory, because information theory originally as, you know, articulated by, by Claude Shannon, Roland Fisher didn't really have a lot of, they didn't know what to do with the difference between uh, information and meaning, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you get at meaning with a rigorous quantitative science? And, and Wolpert and Kolchinsky offer that, uh, what the meaning or what they call semantic information is information that is causally relevant 
to the system in question, you know, so that it's, it, you know, I think when I was, uh, giving my, my, uh, sort of mind map overview of the research that's being done here, which I, I put up on my Patreon, you know, this, this network of ideas that seem to be constellating towards a, an argument that randomness is the perceptual artifact of the, it's like, it's the horizon or what lies beyond the horizon of the models that we use to investigate the world. And that this is the, this is what Graham Harmon calls the third table. This is what Tim Morton calls the future future or the strange stranger, you know, the, the, uh, the utterly mysterious, this is quantum indeterminacy, you know, that, um, but that what it is really is that it's not the information out of context because our bodies are not evolved or that they, they, they're not within what in evolutionary theory you call the zone of proximal evolvability, that this information lies beyond our ability to modify ourselves so as to make it meaningful, which is sort of in this causal loop with what we have historically and you know, future historically regarded as necessary for survival. So like, again, with, you know, time loops, like we do get prophecy, you know, we do get information from the future, but it's, it's information about events that we, you know, evolutionarily relevant events, like surviving a car wreck that have are, are sort of functioning as that second grate in the the two x double slit experiment. You know that that by virtue of surviving, that you have this. You know that that, that the information filters back to you, and so when, with respect to the aesthetic universe, I think it's I think it's a, you know it's it's a fair argument to make that we can't experience anything other than the aesthetic, and that the aesthetic is ultimately what is causal for us. But I would situate that within this sort of four-dimensional evolutionary view where it's not all that exists. And I think I think actually Morton makes this point. It's all that we can know and that what we can, that, that in, in a sense that the, I think it leaves room for like tragedy, you know, because tragedy is, you know, befalls those like true tragic randomness is the the event that you lack the 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 model the intelligence or the sensory apparatus to perceive and i'm thinking of like in sphere uh michael crichton's novel sphere where they're having a conversation about you know they they encounter this profound alien technology and they're like is this a weapon or not and they're like well us asking that question is like a a germ that somehow stumbled into a fuel cell in a satellite and it's being chemically dissolved by this fuel cell. And it's like, it's so beyond the semantic framing of that creature's existence. You know, it, it, it lacks, it lacks context, you know? And so like horrible random things, the black swan events uh, happen, the, the further we push ourselves into like here, there be tigers zones the the world of which we are aware the world of which we can be aware is ultimately uh a world that we encounter through you know trained senses and trained cognitive models that 
therefore like the aesthetic again, you know, that sort of the, 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 the first person encounter is, you know, where the entire conversation lives. And I, I may be misrepresenting Morton in my sort of sidelong sort of wrap around him, but I am. Um, yeah. Cause I, I did find it strange that he, he seems so eager to deny both the present and the subject uh, of any sort of ontological status at the same time that he, he says that the aesthetic is, is the causal. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I, I'm not sure either. I, you know, I've, I've been reading Morton for a while and I'm still, still learning, I think. Um, but, but yeah, that, that also reminded me that uh, example from Sphere, maybe we can kind mm. of, uh, wrap up with a, a wrap of, uh, science fiction, because that reminded me of Akira, which is one of my favorite anime films. And I, I remember that that film made a similar point, um, towards the end of the film, right? Where, where, uh, the, the protagonist or, or he's sort of the antagonist, the anti-hero Tetsuo, right. Who has, who's gained this kind of mutational power. Um, there's other characters who are talking about him and they're going, you know, imagine a bacteria that gains the consciousness of a, of a human being, right. There's this sort of quantum evolutionary leap that takes place. Um, but it's still a bacteria. And in the same way, this human being has now kind of unleashed this, you know, infinite dimensional force within himself and he doesn't know how to use it or interact with it or, or what it's for or anything. And so the kind of the destructive capacity, um, is, is kind of, um, well, it's sort of limitless, right? And that's, a, that's a whole danger behind, um, the film in Akira that the, the, the bomb, right? The singularity is a sort of unleashing yeah. of this, um, I don't, I don't even know the sort of infinite consciousness that, it, that uh, Tetsuo is now able to wield and eventually runs out of, he, he loses control of it, right? He, he kind of swings between this sort of cosmic inflation that he can do anything. And then towards the end of the film, he completely loses control, right? He becomes this amorphous glob of, of flesh and, and wires, just not able to even control his own like morphology. Right. Um, and I've always, always yeah. found that a very good metaphor for where we're at, right. You were mentioning right at the beginning, um, this, the, you know, Kevin Kelly talking about out of control. I, I kind of get that sense that, you know, they're, they're regardless of whether or not reality is aesthetic or not there, we've done something to unleash something <laughs> at these edge zones right where we've kind of cracked things open we are unleashing some things at such a rate that our, our modes of thinking about it, it's, it's just becoming noise now but it's not it, it we are tapping into something we've kind of ripped open a vein but we just don't know what it is because we are still kind of little human beings trying to think about this with our limited mentality so I like the direction that you're taking though with so many of your your conversations or in interviews because it does seem like I don't know. Does it kind of end on a, on a, on a hopeful note, right? Um, the, as we started as well, this whole idea that, you know, it, noise is actually information. So uh, um, maybe we can kind of close with that, you know, just a reflection. Mm, in a way. And I think I, I actually kind of, I think I brought this up in the, the first piece of how to live in the future, which I published uh, with you back when you were co-editor of Metapsychosis, which was that, you know, the future is actually, and the past are, 
horizons. And I think that it makes sense for us to think about the known and the unknown and the unknowable, at least for me, you know, I, <laughs> you know, I may be, uh, you know, doing Gebser a disservice by not more rapidly uh, disabusing myself of geospatial metaphors. I do feel that there is a, you know, it's, it's, it's a deep and embodied and resonant way of thinking about this stuff due to the, you know, the structure of our hippocampus and, and the, the, the literal spatial organization of our memory we stand in relation to the unknown at a at a you know at a distance um, that I don't think changes. I think there's like a conservation that occurs, and that you know when I was talking about you know even if we you know in our efforts to build this sort of globe encircling computer brain that you know will answer all of our questions and that uh it's gonna it's gonna bump up against and we know this already we see this happening we're bumping up against even bigger sort of more beastly questions to me i find this you know that the notion that that randomness is sort of baked into the geometry of a a system attempting to understand its cosmos the idea that the unknowable remains uh, that the 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 goalpost moves, but that that we remain sort of forever surrounded on all sides by mystery is a huge relief. You know, it's like it 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 drives a stake into the heart of the vampiric modern project to end the unknowable. You know, that like this this uh you know this archimedean scientific delusion and it restores to us you know to bring this all the way back around to the sort of the benefits of living in a dark age it's like well actually your eyes ad- adjust to the dark you know <laughs> and like you you sort of accept that it's dark i i really feel that there's something deeply hopeful and awesome about knowing that no matter how sophisticated we become no matter how you know grandiose and terrible our intellectual descendants evolve you know no matter how sweeping our understanding that we remain in relationship to the absolute mystery of our lives in exactly the same place that we were and have always been and it really takes the pressure off of like this weird, you know, race to the finish that we've been in for our entire lives and the lives of everyone alive and their, you know, parents on, you know, centuries back that like, if we really just sort of like accept we're not going to get there, then we can bite off little pieces of mystery and, and digest them as is appropriate, as is practical, you know, and we can say, look, I want to answer this question rather than I'm going to try and solve the universe, you know? And, and then I think we'll get a much more, I think we'll get much more use out of our, our methods of inquiry in that way. You know, I don't think we're, um, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to an age of scientific humility. I don't know. I think that's, that's a, that's a, it's a warm, fuzzy place to end, even though it, it's probably terrifying to any sort of like scientific. Yeah. Moderny types out there, but 
why are you listening to this show it, unless you have a, a sort of uh, ideological death urge? <laughs> I mean, so yeah. That's, that's, that's a great way to, to wrap up. Um, as you were describing that, um, you know, I, I can't find the quote immediately, but you know, it's, it's something Thompson very often says to bring it back to Thompson. Um, this idea that, you know, the horizon of history, you know, is myth and, and so is the future to, to bring etymology into this as well. The whole idea with myth, right. Is, is both the balance between, speaking and being silent right and, and just kind of knowing <laughs> knowing that you can't you know speak the entire cosmos and understand it and grasp it as a totality that there is some mystery left right, as you're saying um and, and then i thought of this quote from uh from uh, understanding media with McLuhan, where um you know McLuhan is talking about this classroom that was shown sputnik right and and this new kind of cosmic sense of how big the universe is and one of the kids wrote this like three line poem the stars are so big the earth is so small stay as you are and it's just this idea that you know we don't need to grasp the whole thing um you know be present but um it, you know there is a mystery behind it and that's actually quite hopeful thanks so, yeah thanks uh, jeremy i immersed in the sort of modern science discourse all day, every day as I, as I am lately, it's good for me to get my, my booster shots of mystery. So <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that we're going to turn the table here and uh, I'm going to have you on my show in a matter of moments. So <laughs>